All right. All right. So, guys, I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark 10. Mark 10. We've been in the middle of a series titled Following Jesus, and we're going to continue um, that series in the three verses that we're going to cover today. And so Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the verse from the very top, and we're going to take a moment to pray. So here's Mark 10, verse 13. It says, and they were bringing children to him that he, namely Jesus, might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. And Father, whenever we hear your word, God, I just pray that we'll be the kind of people that realize that we are hearing words from your very lips. These aren't words that I'm giving. These are your words that we would do well to listen and to respond in a way that we should. Father, I pray that this, is just, this isn't just a Sunday as usual. But Father, that we will sit here understanding that we have an audience with you, that you are speaking to us. And because of that, you desire for us to respond. Help us to do that today. Help us to respond to your love with obedience. Father, we love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who do you aspire to be? What kind of person do you uh, aspire to be like? And you've heard a version of this question from when you were a really young child. When you were a really young child, adults started asking you, what do you want to be like when you grow up? Or who do you want to be when you grow up? I know I got that question all the time. And depending on when you ask me, I answered that question in line with who I was looking up to in the moment. So if you asked me when I was three or four, you asked me who I wanted to be when I grew up, I would tell you a Power Ranger, right? As I got older, right, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. And soon after that, when I realized that the hoop dreams weren't happening, I had, I had other things, right? But they were all in line with the people that I was looking up to in the moment. And what if this morning I told you to be like a kid? Y'all, when you look around the room this morning, there are a few kids in here with us. But adults in the room, I want you to see them, and I want you to look up to them this morning. Why? Because in this text, Jesus and his infinite wisdom tell us, tells us to do so. Tells us to do so. And here's the thing, because Jesus is wiser than us. When he names our aspirations, when he names the kind of people that we should uh, model our lives after, we should trust him rather than trying to decide our aspirations on our own. I kind of gave a hint to this analogy, but growing up, I just told you guys, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. I had hoop dreams. I wanted to be like Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. Don't fight me. And I wanted to be like Allen Iverson, right? And so I remember verbalizing this to everyone who would hear, including my parents. And I appreciated my mother. She was actually here at the last service. My mother didn't completely crush my hoop dreams. She didn't just say, you'll never be that, right? She let me entertain my hoop dreams in the backyard, and still she made me hit the books. 
right? She made me study. She, she, she made me uh, read. She made me do all those things. Why? Because in her infinite, she doesn't have infinite wisdom, but in her wisdom, she understood something about life that I did not understand. You know what she understood? She understood genetics, right? <laughs> she understood that she was five foot one barely. She understood that my father was about five foot nine, and she understood something about me that I did not understand about myself. I had no hope of cracking six feet. And therefore, I likely had no hope of cracking an NBA roster, right? So she was helping me not put all my eggs in one basket. And likewise here, Jesus is, under, Jesus is wiser than us. And he understands something um, that we don't. And if we are wise, we will let him set our aspirations. Every single one of us aspire to be a certain kind of person, especially in a culture here like D.C., and Jesus gives us the aspiration that seems kind of odd. He wants us to aspire to be like a child. He wants us, instead of looking up to receive our aspirations, he actually wants us to literally look down. Kids, if you're in the room, we're trying to be like you this morning. So the question you might have is, what exactly does that mean? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to walk through the text, and I want to give you some encouragement here at the end and along the way. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to verse 13. I'm going to read it really quickly. It says, and they, were bringing, they were, and, in, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So let me set the scene. These parents were apparently running up on Jesus, and they wanted Jesus to simply bless their um, children, and these disciples were pretty much acting like security guards. They were acting like political handlers, and in this moment, they were blocking these children from coming into the presence of Jesus. The text says that the disciples rebuked them. We don't know whether they rebuked the parents or whether they rebuked the actual kids, but they were rebuking this process from happening. And it's interesting because here, the disciples actually had an opportunity to actually apply what Jesus had just told them. So if you've been with us from a little while, you know this, but if you haven't been here, I'm going to give you some context. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Mark chapter 9, and we were covering a text in which the disciples were arguing about their own greatness, right? So Jesus comes to them, and Jesus pretty much helps them see that greatness, and this is something we all need to learn, that your greatness is not demonstrated in your ability to elevate yourself above other people. Your greatness is seen in your ability to lower yourself in order to serve people. So Jesus declares this. He says, says this. And as a way of driving the point home, he takes a child. He's teaching this lesson. He takes a child. He picks this child up. And he says in Mark 9, verse 37, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So here's the thing. Last chapter, just a chapter ago, the disciples hear Jesus loud and clear. If in this moment, Jesus gives the disciples a pop, crib, a pop quiz, hey, disciples, what did I say back in Capernaum? I think they will be able to simply say, yes, Jesus, you told me that I should receive children and those who are like them. But what's so interesting here in this text is, is this. See, these disciples in this moment had the opportunity to actually apply what Jesus had just told them. They had this opportunity, and yet instead of receiving these physical kids who were right before them, the disciples are stiff-arming the kids. 
He had an opportunity. Either respond to the words that Jesus had, that the words that Jesus had just told them about kids, or they could respond to the way that society had conditioned them to respond to kids. And what did they do? They chose the latter and they failed to apply the words of Jesus Christ. And I say all of this because I think this fact actually reveals to us something that's really important about following Jesus. Hear me this morning. To know the commands of Jesus is not enough. To have a cognitive assent, to just know what Jesus wants you to do in your head, that's not enough for us to follow Jesus. To know his commands is not enough. Our lives must be shaped by his commands. Our lives must be shaped by them. Hear me this morning. Obedience, every single opportunity you have to obey God. Obedience is an opportunity for your life to be shaped by the words of Jesus that you already know. I'll put it a different way. Every opportunity that you have to obey the words of Jesus is an occasion to be shaped into the image of Jesus. I say all of it to say because for many of us, when we experience temptation, we only think about temptation in negative terms. So we think about temptation and we think, man, when I'm tempted to disobey God, that is merely me resisting the kind of person that I used to be. Right? Like, God, you saved me from that. So when I'm tempted, man, I don't want to do that anymore. We tend to think of temptation in negative terms. But you know, temptation is actually a positive thing, too. Because when you are tempted, that's not merely an opportunity for you to resist who you used to be. It's now an opportunity for you to shape into the person that Jesus called you to be. Every opportunity for you to, uh, to obey is an opportunity for you to be further shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll give an illustration to drive it home. I had a friend in college that when we were together, man, like we went to, went to school together, we would eat all the same junk food together. Right? We would go out, man, to eat the greasiest burgers we could ever eat, man. We were both equally unhealthy. And so when we, after we graduated, we went our separate ways. I remember he visited me here to D.C. We went out to a good restaurant because I thought I knew that he would love it. Went to a steakhouse. I ordered a steak. And this brother went vegan. Right? <laughs> uh, but he's like, I, he's like, he never told me he went vegan. It's just that his food choices relate to me that he's vegan or something like it. Because I ordered a steak. And he ordered a quinoa salad or something like that, right? I don't know what he ordered, but it was nothing that I would think that he would order. So I'm looking at him, and I'm like, bro, I can never be like you. Steak is too good. And I remember he explained to me that he's now on a diet, and what prompted his diet. What prompted his diet was the words of his doctor. Man, he went in a root for a routine checkup, and pretty much the doctor said, listen, if you don't change your eating habits, your health is going to be headed south. He told me that he had to make some changes, and it was extremely hard initially. It was extremely hard. At first, he said every single meal that was in front of him, every single meal was a fight. Because he had been shaped to eat in a certain way his entire life, and to go against the grain of his habits felt like torture. But in those moments, he trusted the words of his doctor. And he said, as like over time, as he trusted the words of his doctor again and again and again and again and again and again, it began to shape his taste and eating habits. To eat healthier became easier for him. To put it in a different way, every opportunity he had to obey the words of his doctor was an opportunity for him to be shaped by them. He didn't just know his doctor's advice in his head. 
Every meal was an opportunity for him to be shaped by the words of his doctor. Back to this passage. In this passage, Jesus gives his disciples his word about children. And he tells them to receive the kinds of people that children represent. The people who are vulnerable, the people who are forgotten, the people who have nothing to offer. And here in this text, they miss an opportunity for their lives to be shaped by the words of Jesus. They miss an opportunity for Jesus to be formed in them. So you may wonder, Eric, well, what, do, what do you mean for me in this? Let me bring it home to your neighborhood. And we see Arlington. It is not enough for us to know that we, should, that, that we should receive the kinds of people that children represent. It's not enough for us to know that we should receive the vulnerable and the people who have nothing to offer uh, and the people that society typically push aside. Honestly, if I asked you, you could probably tell me that you already know that. It's not enough for us to know this. We need to be shaped into the kinds of people who actually receive those kinds of people. Y'all, knowledge alone does not shape us into the image of Christ. Obedience does. Knowledge alone does not shape us into the image of Christ. Obedience does. So with that said, let me ask you a question. Where in your life have you taken the opportunity to receive the forgotten, the vulnerable, and the people who have nothing to offer? Where in your life have you actually taken the opportunity to receive the forgotten, the vulnerable, and those who have nothing to offer? Let me tell you, we live in a town in which everything in this town is pushing against you from receiving these kind of people. We live in a town in which image is everything, right? And, and, and many times we, we judge people on the basis of their associates, associates. And you're going to be tempted to stiff arm because of that, the forgotten, the vulnerable, and the people who have nothing to offer you. Then we live in a culture in which we're always busy, especially here in, in D.C. I told you of people who came over here from, to America for the first time, and, uh, and they had to choose their American name, and this person shows the name Busy. And somebody asked them why, because every time I ask somebody, uh, I, I ask somebody how they're doing, they say, I'm busy, Right? <laughs> And I feel like that's D.C., right? That's D.C. We're always busy. And you're going to be tempted to push aside and disregard those people who have nothing to offer you because of your busyness. The poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to make room for them. I'm going to take it even a point deeper this morning. In this text, Jesus is actually talking about literal, literal children trying to make their way to him, and the disciples actually pushing them uh, uh, aside. The disciples refusing to receive literal um, children because the disciples believe they aren't as important. And here's the thing. One of the ways that God might be calling you to receive those who have nothing to offer you is actually to serve the children in our church. Y'all, every week, we're struggling to get people to serve our children during our 9 a.m. service. And people really don't line up to serve our kids. So let me tell you a couple of reasons why. People don't sign up to serve our kids because they have absolutely nothing to offer you. Our kids don't offer stimulating conversation. I got them, believe me. They don't offer community. And let me tell you, my kids are in that children's ministry. I'm going to tell you another thing they don't offer you. They don't offer you, to sh they don't offer you a share in their snacks. 
Not at all, right? But let me tell you what they offer you. They offer you, yet again, an opportunity for you to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. They offer you that, right? Listen, Jesus receives us even though we have absolutely nothing to offer him. And when we receive the forgotten, the vulnerable, the people who have absolutely nothing to offer us in life, guess what? You're receiving an incredible gift. Let's keep moving. Go to verse 14. Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Check this. This is the only time in the Bible that Jesus is described as indignant. Jesus is hot. Jesus is, 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 is mad, right? And we see why he's mad in this verse. And there's a couple of reasons. First, the disciples are literally blocking the kind of people that Jesus wants to receive. Man, woe for us if we actually do that. I won't go into an incredible depth here because we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's an incredible, sad, incredibly sad thing to push away the very kinds of people that Jesus wants to receive. But in this text, there's another reason why Jesus was indignant, and I think it's here. It's at the end of this phrase. Not only are the disciples blocking the kind of people that Jesus wants to receive, they're also missing a message that Jesus wants them to receive. I love it says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what he's saying here. He's not saying that exclusively children um, have access to the kingdom of God that adults don't. That's not what he's saying here, right? He's not saying that only kids can um, be saved. He says to such. What he means is those who are like children are granted access to the kingdom of God. And, 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 and I love this here because it's almost as if Jesus is indignant because in rejecting children, these disciples are actually rejecting an incredible opportunity to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And the reason why they are rejecting this opportunity is because it is coming in a package that they don't expect. Here's an analogy. So there should be a series of commercials a little while ago. I love these commercials, and some of you guys might know these commercials. Uh, it was a commercial. Um, it was headlined by a guy named Kyrie Irving, basketball player. And what he would do is he would dress up as an old person, right, an old person. They used to call him Uncle Drew. And he would show up to pickup games around his city. And these pickup games were lively. These guys out here, man, they're trying to win, right? And he would show up looking like an 80-year-old person asking people to let him get on the court. And nobody would pick him up. Nobody would take him. Why? Because they're trying to win. And they're thinking, yo, you're a liability. You're not going to help me win at all. Right? But this was until he actually got out there. Right? Everybody ignores him until he gets on the court. And then his team blows everybody out. Check this. Everybody on that court was fighting for a win. And they didn't realize that the win that they wanted was hidden in a place that they never thought to look. Here in this text. Jesus is saying that eternal life, the eternal life of peace and joy that everybody that you know is looking for, but they don't know what they're looking for, uh, is actually possible. This is what the kingdom of God is. And if they would simply receive the help of someone that they are tempted to dismiss, they would simply receive the help of a child, they just might get it. So you might look at me, you say, Eric, cool, Eric, cool. that all sounds good. But what is it about a kid 
that can help me understand discipleship, that can understand me following Jesus Christ a little bit more. All right, well, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this. It says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. What I love about this text is this. Jesus gives a hint here on how we should model our lives after children. Look at verse 15. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what he's saying here is that there's, a, that there's an analogy, there's a way that children receive things that we should imitate when we receive the kingdom of God. And you know what I think that is? It's this. Children do not receive gifts on the basis of merit. Children do not receive gifts on the basis of merit. What kids have to offer you, guys, the reason why we should look down to kids what they have to offer you is a demonstration of a life free of meritocracy. A life free of meritocracy. Hang with me. Y'all, we do not enter life with an understanding of meritocracy. We learn that. We learn that, right? You begin to learn over time that if you want better treatment from other people, you need to earn it. And so, 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 so what do we do? We begin earning our lives on the basis of our intelligence or the basis of our hard work or on the basis of our good looks. And, and as we live life, we realize that if I get, we realize that we get more when we become more, right? And here's the thing. I'm not trying to argue against the concepts of merits point blank. However, hear me today. Meritocracy is cancer when it creeps into the Christian life. Meritocracy is cancer when it seeps into the Christian life. In the Christian life, we must be like a little child. In the Christian life, we have to retain the innocence of living a life free of merit because that's how children live. Y'all, let me tell you, yo, when my kids want something from me, they don't whip out a resume. They don't try to prove themselves. Man, when my kids... Eat dinner, they don't pay for it. When my kids ask to go to the playground, they don't appeal to their good looks in order to get a chance to go. Right? My kids don't even think of appealing to merits in order to receive good things from me. My kids receive things not on their merits, but because of who they know me to be. Right? Like, I I'm a father, and I'm nowhere near perfect. But I don't give my kids anything on the basis of their ability to prove themselves to me I give them things simply because I'm their dad. For me, it, it would actually be offensive if my kids came to me and they said, Dad, here are all the reasons, here are all the things that I've done around this house. Now take me to the playground. <laughs> it would be offensive. Why? One hand, it assaults my heart as a father. Like, why would my kid think that somehow they had to approve themselves to me in order for them, in order to make me love them? It's also insulting because they have absolutely nothing of value to offer me, right? They have no merits to appeal to to make me do anything for them. Listen, all kids have are crumbs and poop, right? I don't want anyone, I don't want any of those things. Listen, like children, we have absolutely nothing to make ourselves acceptable to God. We have no merits to appeal to. Y'all, every single one of us have sinned against the God who made us. God made us, and instead of following his way, you know what we did? We decided to go our own way. 
We thought that our way was better than his, right? We, we, we willfully disobeyed God. The Bible calls that sin. And because of our sin, we stand under the judgment of God. We stand under his wrath. And if we die in that state, we will experience eternal separation from God. But the most two amazing words of scripture are this, but God. God didn't leave us in that state. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, for us. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, the life that we did not live, in full obedience to his father. Jesus, having no sin for which to die, he died anyway on the cross in our place for our sin. Why? For us, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he did not stay dead. He rose again three days later, proving that he is God and proving that he's victorious over our sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And in response to that, we now have an opportunity. We can now place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. This is what we can do. How do we receive this free gift of salvation? Not by offering God our merits. We have none. We have nothing to appeal to to make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. We don't appeal to merits. What do we appeal to? We appeal to his mercy. We appeal to his mercy. It's by simply coming to God and like that man, that pitiful man in the Gospels, coming to him and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we throw ourselves on his mercy and receive Jesus' finished work on the cross on our behalf, guess what? You are saved and you are now in the family of God. To be a child is to know that your merits mean nothing. And God's mercy is everything. Y'all, we are spiritual beggars. We have absolutely nothing to offer. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have absolutely nothing to offer and they know it. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our merits mean nothing. By his mercy, he's adopted us into his family. His mercy is great. My question for you today is, do you understand that? Let me tell you, when you understand that your relationship with God rests on his mercy, that's going to change your relationship to everything else. It'll change your relationship to everything else. I'm going to give you two places that it's going to change your relationship, and then we'll go ahead and close it for today. So let me, um, let me say this. When you understand God's mercy, it actually changes your relationship to yourself. This is a question I want to give you this morning. And you can write this down just for you to ponder on later. Does your view of yourself rest on your own merits or on God's mercy? Eric, what are you talking about? Let's bring it here to Arlington. Y'all, Arlington is consistently ranked one of the most educated cities to live in. Right? It's always like in the top five. People flock here. Young adults, millennials, man, who are Ivy League educated and uh, really smart. All these people were valedictorians in, 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 in their, in their um, class. And they were big fish in a small pond. And, and you come here and, and, and your whole life, you build your life up on the basis of your merits, who you are and what you've done and, and, and your success. And you get here to Arlington. And you realize that Arlington is a poor place to rest your identity on your merits. Why? Because there's always somebody here that's better than you. And some of y'all have experienced this. You've lived here for years and you were a big fish in a small pond and you moved here and you realized that, wow, there are people here who are smarter than me. There are people here who are more educated than me. There are people here who have more than me. There are people here who are better looking than me. So when that happens to you, what do you do then? If your merits make you great, what do you appeal to now when other people have more merits than you? 
Can I encourage you to do something this morning? Be like a child. Y'all, when my kids argue at the house, it's interesting what they appeal to when they argue. They don't argue based on the basis of their credentials. So, man, just last night, man, they were fighting over a Hot Wheels toy, right? My kids, nowhere in that conversation did they look at one another, and one kid, did he say, hey, I should have the Hot Wheels toy because I'm the eldest child. And the other kid didn't look at the other kid and say, hey, I should have that Hot Wheels car because I understand the theory of engine combustion more than you do. I deserve that, so give that to me. You know, they didn't appeal to their credentials, you know, because kids don't do that. You know what they appeal to? They appealed to my words. They appealed to me, <laughs> right? They started saying dad said, or they started saying mom said. Kids don't appeal to credentials. You know what they appeal to? They appeal to their father's words. Can I ask you a question? When you feel down on yourself and you need to justify your existence, when the glory of other people seeps into your life and you begin to feel that familiar feeling of envy and you feel the wonder, hey, who am I? If I'm not this, if I'm not the greatest here, when you feel insecure about yourself and you're tempted to compare your life with other people, what do you appeal to to give yourself a sense of self-worth? I pray for you this morning. I pray that you don't appeal to your merits because guess what? As you've seen, your merits are a fragile foundation to place your self-worth. You stand at the mercy of being the best and let me tell you, there's always somebody that's better. Y'all, we don't appeal to merits. You know what we appeal to? We appeal to our Father's words about us. We appeal to his mercy. When you understand the depths of God's mercy, you understand that your merits are a poor place to build your self-esteem. It's fragile. You need to appeal to what Jesus has said about you and what Jesus has said about you, nobody else can take from you. By his mercy, he's called you his child. By his mercy, he's adopted you into his family. By his mercy, he loves you and nothing can change that. He's called you a child. I love the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, man. I love how Paul, he, he, he used to flex on people. And so, like, uh, I love how Paul in the book of Philippians, how he, he's, he's, arguing, uh, he's, arguing for his, he's arguing to be received and be taken seriously. And he starts to talk about himself. He says, honestly, if you wanted me to argue on my basis of my marriage, I could argue to a greater degree that you can. And he starts listing them all off. Do you know what he says after that? He says, you know what? Actually, all those merits that I just, saying, uh, just said, those things are dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And when you receive the mercy of God here in this morning, that starts to become true of you. You begin to appeal to God's mercy for your self-worth rather than your own merits. So I just asked you that question. Do you, does your view of yourself rest on your merits or God's mercy? But here's another kind of relationship that will change uh, when you understand and know the mercy of God. Your relationship, not just with yourself, but your relationship with other people are going to change. So, Ben, you guys can go to come back up for this last question. But here's the question I'm going to give you. Not only does your view of yourself, does that rest on your own merits or God's mercy? But does your view of others rest on their merits or God's mercy? Eric, what are you talking about? Hear me. Just like meritocracy is cancer to our spiritual lives, meritocracy is cancer when it comes to spiritual communities. And the Bible actually knows this because uh, the Bible often talks about favoritism. The apostle James writes about this in James 2. He writes about it to the early church because he knew 
They had a temptation of treating people differently on the basis of what they could offer. He describes in James 2, and he warns them against showing favoritism towards the rich and the people who have it all together. And honestly, favoritism is simply another word for meritocracy. Favoritism is simply showing favor to people or saying, I'll treat you favorably based off of what you can offer me. And let me tell you this morning, that's not how the body of Christ works. Y'all, there's so many communities in our world that works that way. There's so many communities that you need merits in order to get into. Think about my life. If I wanted to get in Mensa, I need a lot of intelligence. If I wanted to get into the community of the NBA, I need much more height than I have. If I wanted to get into a community of models, I guess, I would need more beauty than what I have. I have none of those things. I don't have enough of those things. But what do I need to get into the church? What do we need to get into the family of God? What we need is not merits. What we need is God's mercy. And praise God that God is willing to give it. He is certainly willing to give it. Praise God he's willing to do that. And let me drive this home to the way that we see each other. How dare we be a people that eagerly receive mercy from God and demand merits to love other people? Y'all, we must become like little children. I don't know if you've ever seen um, children at a playground, right? I'm not telling you guys to go do it. It's a little creepy. But, um, but I don't know if you've ever observed kids at a playground. Kids don't size other kids up in order to play with them, right? It astounds me when I take my kids to the playground how quickly they make friends and all the friends that they play with are so different. My kids don't have interview forms to interview people and say, hey, I'll play with you if you meet these standards, right? The only standard that they have is, all right, are we all at the playground? Cool, let's go play together. This is what they do. Here's the thing. When it comes to the family of God, especially within the local church, it's so tempting for us to demand merits in order to love people. Y'all, this is astounding, man. Uh, and we, we will all claim that, hey, like, I don't believe that. But when you look at our lives, if you look at the, the people around us, I think for some of us, it might illustrate that uh, for us, you know, you actually have to look a certain way. You have to be a certain kind of person. You have to make me feel better about myself. You, you have to be not awkward to be around for me to actually commit to love you. You have to fit me. My question for you today is maybe we should be like, more like little children. What if our only standard to share, the love and, to share love and grace with the people around us in the church body was simply this fact? We share the same predicament. Each and every single one of us have been recipients of the mercy of God, and that's enough for us to actually love one another. Y'all, if we appeal to be accepted by God on the basis of his mercy, shouldn't we be able to accept fully other people who've done the same? I'm going to drop a little bomb. I'm just going to leave it there. I ain't even going to explain it, but let me tell you this. Y'all, when I talk talk about this, have you ever thought how your friendships, have you ever thought, man, we we have a, a, a large single population here at our church. Have you ever thought how your dating choices might change? Have you ever thought how this community would change if we truly believe that sharing in the mercy of God is enough of a foundation to build a relationship? 
Y'all, this has to be the community. I love the last verse, how Jesus took these kids up in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. He wants to receive anyone. And this has to be the kind of community that the blessings of Jesus Christ that he wants to give to this community is available to anyone, anyone who would come to him. Y'all, we got a lot to learn. And kids, if you're in here, thank you for being willing to teach us. So let me do this real quick. Um, I want to invite, I've got some kids in here, got some kids in the back. I want to invite the kids to stand. I don't mean to put y'all on the spot, but yes, I love the children. But I want to pray over you guys, and I'm going to pray over you too. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for the kids over here and all around the room. Father, I thank you so much for them, and thank you so much of how much they have to teach us. Thank you, Father. Uh, that these kids, when you look at them, man, they do not appeal to their own merits. They appeal to the mercy of their parents in order to care for them. And we thank you for how much they have to teach us. Thank you for their parents. God, I pray that you would bear them up and give them what they need to raise their children well. And I pray as our church body that we will take the responsibility to help these parents and to serve them as they attempt to raise their kids to fear and to love Jesus. I'm going to invite everybody in the room to stand real quickly. I want to pray over you. Father, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice this morning, and I pray that we will aspire not to look up to other people to see who we must be like, to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. I pray that we will aspire to be like the children that we see here, that we will look down and to see and to know the depths of our soul that in order for us to live this life, it's not marriage that we should appeal to. It's your mercy that we, that, that we appeal to. So, Father, will you help us? Will you help us to receive the forgotten, the vulnerable, the people who have nothing to offer? Because that's who we are to you. We have nothing to offer you. We are poor in spirit, and yet you are willing to save us and draw us to yourself because of the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for aspiring to be the kinds of people that you don't desire for us to be. You desire for us to be like children. You don't desire for us to be childish. So many scriptures in the Bible in which you command us to be mature. You don't command us to be childish. You command us to be childlike. So, Father, will you help us? Help us to be a people that appeal to your mercy. And thank you so much that in all these communities, we feel this urge to be somebody else so that people will accept us. Thank you that you accept us as we are. You take us as we are. But the beautiful thing is you don't leave us as we are. You transform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, produce repentance in us. Produce faith in us. So that we might follow you and experience the eternal life that you came to offer through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray these things in the name of your son. If you agree, say amen. Amen.